Welcome everyone to episode 97, Cryopause. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Daylong James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Daylon? Very, very well, Kiki. I'm excited about today's story. Mark Tomashima is my man forever. I've known him since I've been in science, and I love him like oh, a brother. Awesome. Oh, yay. Yes. Another one of my I, brothers. Your brothers. This is what happens. We get I know. <laughs> this, this I show is know. interviews with Dalen's brothers. I Maybe know. we should it's rename the podcast. <laughs> uh, where are the sisters is what I want to know. Come on. More women in science. Or what does it say about me? I have no female friends. What's going on? I have a lot of questions and not a lot of answers. Kiki, we need to move on. We will move on. And you know what? This is maybe something that we need to think about. More female interviews on the show. Let's work on yeah. that. Let's work on yes. that. But before we do that, it is time for us to record this podcast. So let's get down to business. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where you not only can subscribe to our newsletter, but you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and of course, there is iTunes, the Apple Podcast Directory, they've rebranded, and Stitcher, so you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher so that new episodes will automatically download to your phone or your computer. They rebranded iTunes to the Apple Podcast well, yeah, Directory? Yeah, instead of the iTunes Podcast Directory, it's now the Apple Podcast Directory. They're rebranding. They're doing a shift. They're doing a branding turn. I don't know what's oh, going on there. man. Are we going to lose subscribers because of this, Keeks? We need to get on this. I certainly hope not. People like Apple's education, stem cells, they all go together. Oh, you're right. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's good for us. It's good for us. Yeah. All right. But we do have a great show ahead today. We are going to discuss the latest science and stem cell news and interview Dr. Mark Tomashima about his work to enhance the reproducibility of pluripotent stem cell-based experiments by using a new method that they created called cryopause. But first, let's round it up. What do you say, Dalen? Absolutely, Kiki. I'm about ready. But first, I'd like to remind our listeners, as we always do, of one of Connexon's original newsletters. This week, Stem Cell would like to introduce Cord Blood News, a newsletter that we haven't mentioned on this podcast yet. But it's sent to almost 5,000 researchers globally. Cord Blood News has been summarizing the field of cord blood stem cell research for eight years, guys. You know, cord blood, it's the original stem cell therapy, pretty much the only one in wide practice now. So get on it. Subscribe for free at www.cordbloodresearchnews. Man, I wish I'd known about this eight years ago. That's older than my son. I could have been up on cord blood research before I had my child and threw everything away. You blew it. I totally blew it. Somewhere in a ditch somewhere. It's worse. Someone else took it. <laughs> Someone took and they're it. They're doing something bad with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Let's never round know. Up the science. Forget about your kid's cord. Your kid's cord is long gone. Long gone. Cut that cord, threw it away. But you know, now what they're doing, they're working with cows to try and figure out how we might create a vaccine for HIV. Interesting, right? What would cows have to do with it? When I first saw this study, I was like, oh, it's going to be like 
spider silk protein and they're putting the gene for spider silk protein in goats and then you can get protein and create spider silk from goat milk. And I was like, maybe they're doing this with HIV in cow milk, but that's not what's happening. That is not <laughs> what's happening here. Uh, Probably for, for the best. I think. <laughs> yes. So there is, we've had an issue. We have not really been able to make an HIV vaccine because of the rapid mutation rate of the virus itself. We, there are many different strains that are in existence around the world. And even within one person, you have multiple strains because of the mutations that happen in the virus. So most often people develop antibodies specific to one strain, but they are not broadly effective. However, there are about 1% of HIV-infected people that generate broadly neutralizing antibodies. And these can work against many different strains of HIV. So they've had an issue with it, though. It's like, okay, let's isolate those antibodies and see if we can use those antibodies to help infected people. So if we can, you know, multiply the antibodies, these broadly effective ones, they should help, but they haven't. When they're given to monkeys before exposure to a virus similar to HIV, the antibodies do prevent infection. So what's going on here? What they've discovered is that these broadly neutralizing antibodies have a really long stretch of amino acids that stick out from the antibody surface. And this part of the antibody is what binds to a common viral binding site that is the same between all the strains. And this is because the virus uses it to get into a cell. And so this is the part of the virus that if it mutates, it won't be able to get into the cell. So it's preserved. And so this antibody is specific to this. And it seems as though longer stretches of amino acids are able to pierce through the cell more effectively to reach inside. This antibody region is called HCDR3. It has about 30 amino acids in people who are affected with HIV. And this is about twice as long as what is usual for human antibodies. Usually these antibodies are very, very short. They've discovered cows make longer amino acid segments. And so they're like, okay, let's see what happens if we immunize cows against HIV. What's going to go on? They found one cow created antibodies that prevented 96% of 117 HIV types from infecting cells in a lab dish. And then this antibody was really, really long in the cow. And then <laughs> it was like over a, it was a very long antibody. <laughs> the researchers also isolated an antibody from the cow that had an HCDR3 of 60 amino acids that stopped infection by 72% of the HIV types. And so the longer this amino acid antibody chain, the better it is at preventing infection. And so now the researchers are like, all right, we can make these long antibodies in cows, but can they work? It? Will they work in other species? Will they work in humans? We don't know. And could researchers induce antibodies that are this long in humans? Is there some step that we can go about in, to induce this actually naturally happening in humans? Or are we going to have to just figure out how to use cow antibodies to HIV? But this is a really interesting new step in the direction of figuring out how to prevent infection by this virus. So we can use the cow's antibodies? Or are we going to try and copy how the cow immunizes? 
Or both, I guess. Yeah, they don't know if the cow antibodies will be effective in other animals. If the, in a human shoe. Yeah, see, yeah. So that is something that, that has to be tested still. And more cows. We're going to need some more cows. We don't have enough. More cows. Lab cows. <laughs> oh, man. I can't even imagine. You know, it's funny. We actually use, because mice, they have like eight or nine babies at a time. So to model human reproduction, we use bovine. We use cow ovaries. So they are a research animal. But can you imagine having cows in your research facility? Ugh. A lot of maintenance. Oh. Moving that way. Though, Lots please. of manure, too. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And this segs right in because, you know, cows release a lot of methane, which is part of the problem with global warming. And with global warming, temperatures are getting hotter, right? Mm-hmm. Temperatures are getting hotter. And published online July 13th in Climatic Change is uh, some research on how climate change, increased temperatures are going to impact air travel. People have probably seen this story recently that flights were grounded in Arizona a couple of weeks back because of high temperatures. The temperatures were so high that the planes couldn't take off. And why does this happen? Warmer air is less dense, so the planes aren't able to create as much thrust. So they either need to be lighter, which means they'd have to keep people, sell fewer seats, basically, which would make the seats that they do sell more expensive for us. Or they just need to use longer runways, which that's not necessarily going to happen. So the impact in the coming decades, they think that we're going to have 10 to 30 percent of flights that take off during the hottest time of day are probably going to face weight restrictions because it'll be easier for airlines to just sell fewer tickets and have less weight from people and baggage aboard than it will be to lengthen the runways. Wow. I never would have thought. It didn't even occur to me. It was just the news a couple of weeks ago. It's like, really? They're grounding flights because it's hot? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, don't tell Makes my sense. wife because now on a hot day, I mean, she's going to be freaking out about the plane crashing every time it's hot. <laughs> she's a nervous flyer. No, no. It just won't be able to take off. It'll be fine <laughs> once it gets in the air. <laughs> Another really neat study that I love this, researchers, George Church is one of the research involved with Seth Shipman, and they are working on using CRISPR to edit bacteria to record molecular data in bacterial DNA. So, you know, basically transcribing, translating, transcribing, using a a digital cipher to turn letters of the alphabet into DNA so that you could preserve books, poetry, and maybe photographic images. And now what they've done is they've created a GIF or a GIF, depending on your technical background. It's a moving picture of a galloping horse. And if you have ever seen the iconic first movie that was ever created by Edward Moybridge for human and animal locomotion, he was studying how horses run and took a series of pictures of horses at a gallop to discover whether or not all their legs were off the ground at one time at any point during their stride. It was the first moving, a series of images over time that were taken. And now what George Church and Seth Shipman have done is they have recorded images in E. coli over a period of time using CRISPR and the DNA for 
specific images, basically once a day, they would CRISPR the E. coli population and slip in a new image via DNA. And then they grew the population for several generations and then uh, broke it all down, took the DNA and were able to get about 90% of the encoded information that completely intact. So it wasn't a perfect storage system, but you can watch the movie that was recorded in DNA. Wow. And this was published in Nature, July 12th. I feel like this is like the beta version, and sooner or later, they're not just going to be recording and storing information, they're going to be like processing it. They're going to be using right. cells to like as like a quantum computer. So it may seem a little bit like, so what? And obviously there's tremendous implications just for storage, but this I think is just a, a little window into the possibilities here of information processing using biological systems. Yeah, biological computers. I mean, right now with this, I mean, it's not something that everybody can use, but this is almost like a biological thumb drive. You know, you can stick files in the bacteria and the bacteria over generations will hold that information inside of themselves. And this is the kind of thing that potentially you could set up cells in a stem cell situation where you're trying to look at different stages of development of the stem cells and get sequential time information on steps of development, have the cells actually record what is happening inside of themselves as they develop or within a population of cells as the cells develop. So it could be a very useful biological recording device for our research moving forward into just even how development works or diagnostics. Diagnostics. Exactly. Yeah. So many applications if they really dial this in. And then moving on from stem cells to what do you get when you go to the movie? You get a big old Coca-Cola or something, right? That big sugary drink when you go to the movie theater, soda and popcorn. Maybe you should think about not doing that while you're pregnant so much. If you're going to have a sugary drink, maybe opt for the smaller size, not big amounts of sugary drinks. There's a lot of evidence weighing in about the epigenetic effects and uh, the maternal effects of diet on offspring and what happens. A new study out of Harvard Medical School and Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute in Boston looked at sugar-sweetened beverages that were drunk during pregnancy on the outcome of obesity and health on their children. This was published online July 10th in Pediatrics. The uh, take-home from this is that at age 8, boys and girls weighed about a quarter of a kilogram more, about a half a pound more, for each serving of sugary drinks that a mother added to her diet per day while pregnant. And you know, the first thing you might think is, well, if this is, you know, mom is drinking sugary drinks while she's pregnant, how is she raising the child? Maybe something has to do with what the diet of the child is. But no, the diet of the children, how many sugar drinks they were drinking in their diet did not influence the outcome of how much they weighed. This is a little bit of evidence in the direction of, eh, we should really, maybe one sugary drink a day is not really going to have an impact, but this is fruit drink. This is sodas. This is something that mom's sugar intake can influence. It's correlation, of course, but can influence outcomes 
for children. Thought it was just booze and cigarettes. <laughs> no. <laughs> nope. Stop doing everything, pretty much. Yeah, basically. <laughs> just, just sit there. Oh, but you're supposed to. Ex- <laughs> Wait, you're supposed breathe. to exercise. Yeah, just breathe. That's it. But only breathe in a clean location where you know there's no air pollution. <laughs> it's hard to be a woman. It's no wonder we don't have any of these women in science, man. God, just busy yeah. breathing over there. <laughs> and then you know the sleep. We all need to get good sleep as well, right? Make sure you sleep. Reported July 10th in Brain. Oh my goodness! Just one night of disruption to your deep sleep cycle is enough to increase the amount of amyloid beta protein in people with Alzheimer's. People in the study, in this study, who slept poorly for a week also had more of a protein called tau, the tau tangles in their spinal fluid, than they did when they were well-rested. And so the question here, Alzheimer's patients are known to have sleep issues, but researchers haven't been sure whether it's a cause or a consequence of the disorder. So they were like, well, let's look at people and how they sleep. And so they took a group of great sleepers, not very many, only 17 individuals, but these people aged 35 to 65 with no sleep disorder. They're totally fine. And they tracked their sleep at home and wore activity monitors to do that. And then they visited the sleep lab at least twice. The volunteers slept normally during one visit. And then on another visit, there were beeps that were played through headphones whenever the volunteers were about to go into their deep, slow-wave sleep. The beeps didn't wake anybody up, but it kept them from getting that slow-wave sleep. And so then the researchers did spinal taps to find out what was going on with these proteins. On that single night of sleep disruption with no slow-wave sleep, these volunteers had increased levels of the amyloid beta protein in the morning. The tau levels did not change because of one night of sleep disruption, but if they had had poor sleep in the week before the test, they had higher levels of the tau protein. So longer term, an individual single night of bad sleep is going to change amyloid beta levels, but tau proteins increase over longer-term disruption. And so this pushes evidence toward the hypothesis that it's lack of rest for brain cells that's detrimental and possibly increases the development of Alzheimer's-related proteins. The bummer. I don't sleep very well ever, so uh, it doesn't look good for me. No? <laughs> but, well, you don't. you don't have Alzheimer's now. This is a study of... Alzheimer's patients, so... Thanks for the pep talk there. This isn't just normal, (laughs) healthy people. (laughs) That's my answer. I'm feeling depressed, and she says, well, you don't have Alzheimer's right now. Oh, wait, no, I'm wrong. I'm totally wrong. Let me fix this. I'm wrong. This, we're all healthy adults. (laughs) These weren't just Alzheimer's patients. Yeah, all of us. Bad sleep. We are all on the road to developing no, Alzheimer's. Is, is I, I do have Alzheimer's. Now, yeah. <laughs> but that does it for me. Maybe you can get through this. We'll finish our recording and go take a nap. <laughs> that is if I can remember what I'm going to say. Right. Yeah. There we go. I'm on the precipice. All right. Well, 
moving away from the brain because it's depressing. We can talk a little about the, the blood. I'm always about the blood. This is about immunity, which, you know, um, the immune system has also been implicated with Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative disease and the gut. All these things are all intertwined. And this, you know, I'm going to talk about how the immune system is related to malignancy. So this is researchers at the University of Zurich. They've shown for the first time that hematopoietic stem cells, they detect infectious agents themselves. And that is what stimulates their division. It's not secondary to these growth factors. And this direct production of defensive cells is kind of a liability in the long term. But we're going to come around to that because it could lead to cancer and malignancy in old age. So just to talk about the dog, and this is studies that were conducted by uh, Marcus Mand at the University, uh, University Hospital in Zurich. And his team has been able to demonstrate in the past how cells from the vascular walls mediate defense against infection. And that's like this growth factor process. They see the infectious agents and they react to bacterial infections. And then they mobilize the hematopoietic stem cells to divide and populate the immune response. But the researchers there at University Hospital Zurich and Marcus Mann's team have now showed in an astonishing new work that uh, the cells, the hematopoietic stem cells themselves, are also able to respond directly. And this is dogma smashing because scientists previously assumed that these HSCs are in a space in the bone marrow that's totally protected from Hmm. any environmental input, this hematopoietic stem cell niche. So the idea was that they only were mobilized after the fact, after some gatekeepers had responded to the initial insult. So it's mediated by this receptor called TLR4, toll-like receptor 4, and it's like an antenna on the surface of the cell, and it detects the structures, these protein structures that are only found in infectious agents. Examples are these are these lipopolysaccharides, or LPS. And this group, they administered these LPS to mice, and they found that these latent hematopoietic stem cells divided and produced in a immune uh, response directly. You know, the idea here is that this can be an early response system. You get the infectious agent and the stem cells themselves are mobilized. But there is a drawback potentially to this because if you have this chronic stimulation of these stem cells, you know, these stem cells are the ones that ultimately comprise much of the malignancy in these bloodborne or any kind of cancer, this idea of the cancer stem cells. So they kind of can shift from this regenerative ability to repopulate the immune system and instead become cancers. So according to a lot of scientists, you know, not involved with the work, this discoveries in the mouse model is really going to be useful for explaining how chronic inflammation or chronic infection can enhance the development of malignant hematopoietic stem cell diseases as you get to older age. And I think more importantly, in these mice experiments, the group was able to slow down this harmful byproduct using a medication so they could maintain that immediate reaction, the hematopoietic stem cells, which was previously underappreciated while kind of mitigating the risk of malignant transformation of these cells. So I think, you know, understanding this potential and the malignant kind of byproduct downside of that, maybe we can obviate that and lead to a healthy immune system without having the downside of these cancers that can emerge, unfortunately. So yeah. I think it's a pretty strong study. Yeah, published in uh, Cell Stem Cell just recently at University Hospitals. Are- 
It's fascinating. I mean, the idea of the balance that, you know, the evolutionary balance you know, for a st stronger survival on the one hand by increasing the activity, the early activity of the immune system, but then at the same time, that ongoing stimulation being negative. And so the leukemias, the, the bloodborne cancers, the bone marrow type cancers that occur later in life, maybe they are a result of something that's been ongoing and just never seen. And that these hematopoietic cells are, have been active and active and active. And if we could catch them early somehow, if there's some kind of marker, then there could be a preventative intervention like they're talking about. I mean, this is so, this is amazing. Exactly. Balance, like you said. Balance. I think a big question, unfortunately, I think everyone's always thought of the idea, yeah, it's good for your immune system, challenge your immune system, you know, your kids, hey, just get them sick as much as possible. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe yeah. we got to rethink some of those things, but it's good information. Good to have it in the arsenal. Uh, and, you know, speaking of cancer, we hate it, right? You know, brain cancer in particular. We've talked about glioblastoma, the bad guy in recent headlines. You see Senator John McCain, unfortunately, afflicted. Very poor prognosis. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of types of brain tumors, metastatic brain tumors, often that emerge from lung, breast, or skin primary cancers are the most commonly observed cancers within the brain. And they account for and about 40% of advanced melanoma metastases go to the brain. And current therapeutic options are limited, particularly, as you can imagine, when there's multifocal mets. You know, these things, they come from the primary tumor and they spread in the brain, not always as a single metastasis, but by the time you see them in particular, it's multiple metastases. So that makes it really hard to address this. With using precision instruments, at least, uh, without using these massive ablative chemo. But there's a need to find a novel therapy and to devise a potential new therapy. Investigators at the Brigham Women's Hospital and the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, they have used bone marrow-derived mesenchymal stem cells that they loaded with the oncolytic herpes simplex virus, which is a tool that they've developed that specifically kills dividing cancer cells while sparing the normal cells. So the approach they used was to inject these into the mice that had already been preloaded with these, this tumor cancer model that's close to these metastases in humans that go to the brain. And after verifying that the stem cells that were injected to the brain would go to multiple metastatic sites without going to the tumor-free areas in their model, they repeated the process using the mesenchymal stem cells that were laden with this oncolytic herpes simplex virus, and they injected them in the carotid arteries of these metastasis-bearing mice, and this led to significantly slower tumor growth and increased survival compared with mice that received just unaltered stem cells or control, you know, sham saline injections. This study is a major step forward, I think, in, in trying to use these kind of smart bomb mm -hmm. type therapies where you can use a cell that'll home to sites of injury or in this case, sites of tumor metastasis and then unload this therapeutic payload, in this case, an oncolytic herpes simplex virus. It's a way that we can get at these tumors that otherwise would be kind of inoperable. So I think it's a, a really nice approach that hopefully it can be used in the future to treat some of these metastases that are very, very common and, and very tough to treat. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the brain, if they spread 
the little tendrils and fingers through various areas of the brain. You might be able to do surgery to remove the large tumor, but the fingers are almost impossible right. to remove without drug interventions. And so if you can have a very specific attack that can go in. Yeah, yeah we need it. We need we it. We need it. Mm-hmm. The brain. Oh, what a catastrophic and tragic, tragic condition. All right. Well, staying in the brain, we have a chimera study. All right. I love chimeras. Oh, I love them. love them. They're very polarizing, and I'm glad to see you're happy. Some people are not. They're not pleased. I'll just summarize. So lab mice whose brains were injected with cells from schizophrenia patients became afraid of strangers, slept fitfully, felt intense anxiety, struggled to remember new things, and showed other signs of the mental disorder, schizophrenia, like staring at the advertisements on the subway car. No, I'm just kidding on the last one. But this is real. You know, all those other things. They injected mice with human cells, and they started exhibiting human behaviors. Pretty bizarre and, like I said, polarizing. This latest advance in chimeric animals, this is animals that are made by transplanting cells from one species into another, it showed the value of this technique for making these chimeric brains because the brains were exhibiting human-like behaviors. So just a little background, under this 2015 moratorium at the NIH, there's no funding available from the NIH, at least, that for research that transplants human stem cells into early embryos of non-human or any other animal. And when they asked for comment on lifting this moratorium, they were blitzed with more than 20, or almost 20,000 responses. Almost all of them were really vehemently objecting to, quote-unquote, grossly unethical research. That's because too many people have seen the Planet of the Apes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, Planet of the Monkeys is, yeah. is, would be more grim. Yeah. But, I mean, listen, I think most people thought, ah, well... Other people who weren't so vocal maybe thought it just wasn't really even feasible to have this chimeric brain. They should think again, maybe. In this new study, and it's in Cell Stem Cell by Stephen Goldman's group, the human cells were injected not into early embryos, so it was available for NIH funding. It was injected into newborn mice. Mm. And so what they did is they made IPS cells from five people who had developed schizophrenia as children. So it was more seemingly kind of genetically associated, as it usually uh, strikes people in early adulthood. And three healthy volunteers. So they had IPS cells from five and three healthy, five schizophrenia and three healthy. And they turned them into human glia-making cells, injected these into the brains of a few dozen mice, and they looked at what happened. So compared with glia from healthy people, the glia-making cells from schizophrenia-affected IPS cells, they went through the mouse brains but they didn't linger. They, inje- they were in there, but they didn't linger long enough to myelinate the neurons. And this is really the function of these glial cells. And schizophrenic brains are typically have abnormally low myelination. So this kind of made sense. And also the glia-making cells mostly fail to turn into astrocytes, which helps the neuron you know, connectivity and dictates like the firing of those synapses. So when you don't turn into astrocytes... The whole neural networks are disrupted, and this is catastrophic, especially for a developing brain. And now, the you know, the really important, relevant part to me, the IPS from schizophrenic patients really affected the mice behavior with respect to our relative to the control-injected mice. For schizophrenia cells, they were more afraid to explore a maze. They were more anxious. They were more antisocial, less able to feel pleasure from sipping sugar water, apparently, Mm. worse at remembering, 
and more sleepless. This is all symptoms that characterize schizophrenic people. I, I am going to say I don't like the characterization of the feeling anxiety, feeling pleasure. I mean, there are behavioral correlates of these emotions, but come on. That's yeah, anthropomorphizing think, a little bit. I agree with you 100%. It's nuts, the, the descriptions. But, you know, I think... However you want to ascribe the behaviors and ascribe any kind of human correlate to that, the bottom line is these mice were behaving differently. And I think underneath all of this, this isn't just about schizophrenia as a, as a neurodegenerative disease or a developmental psychological disease. So the study really underlined how readily mouse brains, if they're injected apparently at the newborn stage, can accept human cells. The transplants that you put in there outcompeted the mice glia taking their place in the developing brain until, quote, almost all of the glia are human, according to Goldman. So this is nuts. Oh, You're getting yeah. mice that have almost all of their glia derived from a human source. And I mean, I don't want to be alarmist or to feed the fire of these anti-progressives here, but it does raise some interesting questions. What's the difference between a mouse that has entirely humanized glia if they're injected as an embryo or if they're injected as a newborn mouse? That's a lot of human brain in there. So it's definitely going to be polarizing and it's going to force us to answer and address some important questions regarding bioethics for better and worse. Yeah, I think we need to have these conversations. So I, you know, I'm glad researchers are pushing the envelope here because we should talk about it. And, you know, glia, large percentage of human glial cells does not make a human brain in a mouse. And Good so point. the things that people are worried about are not necessarily the things they should be concerned about in this particular case. And so, I mean, does it make sense to stop embryonic research? I mean, and if it's so successful in young mice, then do we need to add do the embryonic? I mean, there all sorts of great questions. Maybe not. The study is so interesting. I love the fact that they put the cells in and it the, the cells worked in the mouse brains and the schizophrenic behaviors presented. Kiki, they were less able to feel pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> That's These right. Poor mice. I can't feel pleasure. Oh, I mean, yeah. they got to talk to the Ayakuk about that. If you're going to, that's cruelty. Yeah. The mice got to at least feel some pleasure, for goodness sake. Yeah, poor mice. All right. You know what makes me feel pleasure is Shubing Chen. All I right. love this girl, and she's my near neighbor, and I'm so pleased to even be in on the same neighborhood as her. Not scientifically, I mean geographically. She's literally across the street from me. And we just talked about her a big study last week, colonic organoids in nature medicine. She's followed that up because, you know, what's a week without a Shubing Chen study? With a story in Cell Stem Cell with Lorenz Studer, just briefly, it was a big study. You guys should all read it because it's about Zika. We love Zika. We love to hate Zika. We love to hate Zika. But this was yeah. positive. I mean, I felt really good about this. I might go to the Caribbean this year. So they did a screen of a th more than a thousand drugs that are already approved by the FDA to look for anti-Zika compounds. And the reason why this is a stem cell story, even though it's Shubing doesn't usually hang out in the neural space. She's mostly, you know, pancreatic or gut. You know, teaming up with Lawrence Studer, they were looking into infectivity of Zika virus, how they could stop that. They generated a bank of human neural progenitor cells. By the way, the guest today, Mark Tomashima, he's on this paper. He was banking all their neural progenitors for sure. We'll ask him about that. But what they did is they generated this bank and they screened with more than a thousand already approved drug candidates for compounds that would inhibit Zika infection in neuroprogenitor cells, also in these fetal-like 
four brain organoids that we previously talked about on the show, and they found a hit. They found this hippiastrin hydrobromide that not only served as a prophylactic, so this has been shown in other studies that if you had a drug that could inhibit or reduce the infectivity of a virus, so if you're already taking the drug, you won't get Zika, which we all know, come on, you know, they're not going to be that useful for most people unless they're really using it as a prophylaxis. But this also, this compound also suppresses Zika virus in mice that were already carrying it. They were oh, wow. already infected. So this is, a, is a, I think, a big step where it makes me feel good. Like yeah. maybe we got, I'm not saying we got this thing figured out, but like we have drugs that are already in play that are working suppress the virus. Do you know what the drug is used for currently? Is Yes. So, you know, these drugs have been prescribed in the past. I don't know if it's on label or off, and, and you should look at the paper for details because I'm kind of speaking from memory here. But I think these have been used in the past to treat other types of viruses, other type of flavor viruses, like this one drug. Okay, I see it here. was used to treat hepatitis C. And it's really even better about this. In treatment of hepatitis C, it's shown even no toxicity, even at high doses. So other drugs that might be used to inhibit Zika virus, you might be worried about giving them to a woman who's pregnant because, you know, they might be affecting development in God knows how many ways. So this drug that they've found not only works as a prophylaxis, it suppresses existing affection. It's been used before in the context of hepatitis C, and it shows almost no toxicity. So it's probably safe for human pregnant patients. So it remains to be seen whether this is going to work in actual animal models to rescue or prevent infection with Zika. But I think that's just dotting your eyes. I think we've got a really strong candidate here, and I would love to have Dr. Chen on the show again. Speaking of amazing women in science, she's, you know, just about the tops to talk about this story because it makes me feel good about my spring break, Kiki. That's right. You could go to the Caribbean or Wisconsin because I think Zika has <laughs> been found way. in Wisconsin now. Oh, so, no. Well, I'm not it's, scared. It's moving up the eastern seaboard there. He got, you know, it's, it's heading up. I bet it's in New York. You might as well just no. go to the Caribbean. <laughs> Just cut my losses. No, that's the right. Sunk cost. We've all got Zika. Uh, yeah, anyway. well, it's moving around quickly enough that uh, these kinds of treatments are going to become necessary. And hopefully this is one that really, hopefully it's one that really works. And hopefully it'll be readily available globally. Yeah, well, yeah. already approved by the FDA. So I think, you know, they could fast track this for Zika. It's conceivable. Yeah. All right. So that does it for our roundup, doesn't it? Before we get into our interview, Stem Cell Technologies wants to let us know about a product line called... Freezer S. Freezer S, yes. Stem Cell Technologies provides a cutting-edge cryopreservation reagent called Freezer S with recovery efficiency and viability rates of up to 80%. Freezer S greatly improves the complete cryopreservation process. For more information about efficiently cryopreserving pluripotent stem cells, please visit www.stemcell.com slash freezer s, F-R-E-S-R dash s. And the link will be on our website as well if you can't remember from my telling you. But, you know, other ways you can be getting information about cryopreserving is listening to this interview that we've got right now. 
All right. The Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome Mark Tomashima back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Mark is an associate laboratory member and Sloan Kettering Institute Stem Cell Research Facility Manager. And he's here to talk to us about all things stem cells, including his latest published work on standardizing protocols that start with pluripotent stem cells. Mark, welcome back to the show. But for us, the first time we've talked to you on this show. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to it. You're welcome. So let's just start off by giving the audience details about you and the work that you do in your facility. So I've run a pluripotent stem cell facility here at Sloan Kettering. So my goals have been to sort of teach people how to grow pluripotent stem cells, reprogramming of somatic cells to induce pluripotency. We do a lot of directed differentiation, taking those pluripotent stem cells and differentiating them to cell types of interest. Do some gene editing, gene targeting sorts of experiments, making transgenics. So I'm sort of a jack of all trades and a master of none. My goal is to sort of try to help people do what they need to do. You're like the utility knife of stem cells. That may be a nicer way of thinking. <laughs> I don't know about nicer. That's a different way of putting it. It sounds tougher and cooler than... Yeah. <laughs> I am a utility tool for science. <laughs> oh, no. Utility tool? That's even worse. You're the biggest <laughs> tool in stem cells. <laughs> oh, oh Dalen. I can say this because I've been your friend a long time, and you're not at all a tool. You're the coolest guy I know. But now I'm waiting till you're on the show to ambush you with some questions that have been on my mind forever. And the first one is this. When you're operating a core, do you ever, like, you don't have to name names, but don't people come at you sometimes and you're just like, that's a terrible idea, but I guess I'm going to have to, like, follow through. I mean, I'm supposed to be here as a utility for you guys. Do you ever just you know, have to grin and bear it through really bad ideas. Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> it's tough because not only should I be helping them, but you want to help enthusiastically. But on the other hand, you know, you're just thinking that's really the worst experiment I can imagine doing. Or top 10, let's say, you know. Do you nudge them? Can you, like, steer them in the right direction at all? Can you salvage projects? My goal is not to design those experiments. It's to help those that are designing them get it done. And so, you know, that's sort of my job, and that's what I do. But that's yeah, not all you do. I mean, Let's... it's definitely more fun when you want to be involved, that's for sure. And so, speaking of involved in your own stuff, maybe it's a good segue. You could talk about your recent study, this cryopause. Can you press play on that for us, buddy? Tell us sure. about cryopause and how it's both a utility, but it also lines up with your own research interests. Sure. So, this project really came out of the frustration that I had that pluripotent stem cells, they can change. You know, they, there's a lot of batch-to-batch -batch variation. And when people grow these cells, we often will make them sort of just in, in little batches every week, as you well know. You know, you passage cells uh, 10 times, 20 times. Some labs passage cells forever. And I think the unspoken uh, part of that that we all know is that cells are changing genetically, which is not great. But we also know that the cells will change in their behavior. And I think what's really hindering us at some level is that we don't have prognostic markers that tell us that one batch of cells is going to behave differently than another. If we look at all of our favorite markers, you will see that they're usually up, but it doesn't necessarily tell you that they're going to behave differently this week. And so what we'd hope to be able to do is sort of grow huge batches of cells 
as many as you can stand, essentially. And this is kind of one of the hard parts is to get people's mindsets to change and to accept that challenge and to try to grow billions of cells and freeze them down ahead of time. And in this way, you've essentially just eliminated that variable from your experiments. One other thing that's derivative of that, and I think is actually enormously useful, it's really easy after that. You know, you can just go and pull cells out of the freezer and use them on any given Monday. You don't have to be in taking care of your cells over the weekend. There are a lot of practical reasons, I think, that this workflow is also good, but those are just sort of, that's just side benefits. It's not really the main driving force for me. Be specific. We're talking about you take a cell out of the freezer or a batch of cells yeah. out of the freezer and you start your experiment right off. I mean, because this does change the game. This is why you can't get a postdoc to get enthusiastic about stem cells is because they're like, oh, no, my weekends. You can literally never walk away from these things. So this is changing the landscape of uh, human stem cell experimentation. Give us an example of some of the applications you're pushing these out for right now. Some of the applications are doing IPS-based disease modeling work. I think there's another benefit here in that sort of research, because usually what we do is we grow a number of different clones from different patients. And sometimes these lines have their own personality. Some cell lines grow a little faster, some grow a little slower. And when you're trying to do these experiments, you're juggling a whole bunch of them at the same time while you're trying to differentiate them. And so the workload becomes oppressive. This leads to human error, which has happened in my lab before and was uh, semi-tragic. You're doing all of these things. And the other problem here is that you're normally trying to passage them at a day that's right for most of the cells, right? So some that are going fast, maybe you're going to overgrow. The slow pokes are going to undergrow. And you're just going to shrug and do the best you can. I think here with Cryopause, it allows you to do the work ahead of time so that the oppressive workload is sort of split up. And it lets you tailor the growth for each of your lines and then freeze them at the stage that's going to be optimal for each line before initiating the differentiation. So the disease modeling is definitely one application. Dalen, I think you know also that my lab has been involved in manufacturing a cell therapy. And so, you know, I'm always interested to hear you guys talking about this and cheering us on, although with some level of raised eyebrows, which I think is deserved. That's another real big application, I think. And we manufactured cells that we're hoping are going to get into patients by this time next year. And in that process, I also, you know, I myself was in there with gloves on trying to get this done with my team. The expansion of pluripotent stem cells was something that gave us headaches. Sometimes we had to wait an additional day that would throw us off. And so we would have to do some of our big days on the weekend, which, you know, in this application was fine. It wasn't that we were upset that we had to come in on the weekends, but a lot of the supporting facilities weren't open. So if we had to do in-process testing, we had to come up with ways that we were going to get that testing done. Things like that, you know, the ability to just have your therapy ready to just melt and go, start the differentiation. I think could be a game changer for us. And, and if you think big about this, you can imagine making one huge batch that gets tested and then is used for multiple manufacturing runs. So that should tighten up also the product you're going to get out at the end. You can imagine even before getting into manufacturing, also it could tighten up process development because when you're going through and you're trying to take a dirty research-grade protocol and you're trying to make it suitable for human use, this wiggle, this change in your pluripotent stem cells could be part of the reason you're getting different results and not necessarily the reagent in question. Could really pay huge dividends down the road in both basic and applied science. Can we get into a few of the specifics of the technique of how cryopause works? Because I'm imagining you don't just, you know, grow the colony, then you isolate single cells and you can stick them in their little tubes 
And then it's not like ice cubes. You don't just stick it in the freezer, right? So how do you make sure that you are creating an environment that you are preserving these cells at a stage that they are paused and not dying because there's too much water or they're getting cracked or things are going wrong? It is surprisingly easy to do this. We did do a number of different things and looked at a number of different things that might affect the viability of the cells and their ability to undergo the freeze. We kind of can just make a cell suspension and put it in the freezer. I mean, using these conventional Mr. Frosties. We used a fancy controlled rate freezer for most of our experiments, and we used a proprietary freezing reagent for them, which I do think provided the optimal situation. But, you know, and we kind of thought initially that these things could hinder people's ability to actually reproduce the work and, and to really widely adopt the technique because not everybody has access to these fancy controlled rate freezers and the proprietary reagents are not super cheap. We worried about that. Initially it worked, so we went with that. So later we backtracked and we started to ask what's really necessary. And really what we found is that you can really freeze cells in a number of different ways and get fairly high viability with them that should work for this process. The type of pluripotent expansion you do matters. So the culture platform itself mattered for the viability we got and sort of the old school, traditional, original system that many of us still use, that one suffered under these conditions. And there, the proprietary reagents that your sponsor actually makes made a difference. Free plug their stem cell technologies. Awesome. Yes. They'll be happy for that. So buy your freezer S now. That stuff actually really mattered for the feeder-based culture. Yeah, so you're not just using like propylene glycol. That's an antifreeze kind of thing. No, but, you know, just straight DMSO, regular stuff that one would normally use with mammalian cell cultures usually works pretty well in this sort of situation. And I think the real surprise for us and maybe other people that read it is that you can just wake cells up. And the common knowledge was that viability is bad and that cells are groggy and are going to behave strangely. That's kind of what we thought, too. But, you know, we just kind of hoped that, I mean, we just thought we'd do the experiment. And I have to admit, I was surprised myself at how well they do. Yeah, it's funny. I thought the dogma was, in my personal experience, but now I'm reconciling it, was right out of a thaw, my cells, I have really great diff. Like, they're really robust. They go right where I want them. But I always assumed it's because they had this, they were fresh onto meth, and they had weeded out all the bad guys, and they had this expansion period. But I guess what you're saying is that it's really how they're frozen, how they're grown and then frozen. And then right out of the thaw, they can really come right back to life without that adjustment period. And I guess that's the innovation. But, but the emphasis there is on the growth. What's different about the growth pre-freezing that can be amenable to just generic freezing? I don't think it's anything crazy. It's really, again, just feeder-free culture. I really think that what maybe has happened to us as a field is that so many of us grew up, you're old school, you know, we grew up using mouse feeders and KSR. And, you know, back in the, in the old days, you used to get nervous when you would freeze cells and wake them up. I've been handed many vials of cells where you're praying that something's going to crawl back out of the dish at the end of the day, because there's just tons and tons of dead cells and the viability is horrendous, right? So we all grew up with the dogma that the cells needed to recover for two to three weeks to really regain their footing and be able to do the experiments that you want them to do. And I, I know a lot of the biobanks would tell you as such. There had been evolution in culture, feeder-free culture. And so, you know, with the advent of uh, MTZer and with Essential 8 Media now, things have changed. 
there are publications that show that you can get really high viability upon freezing. So it wasn't like we really reinvented uh, the freezing medium or the technique or anything like that. It was really just a matter of making that next leap of faith to say that we could just take cells directly out of the freezer and use them. And also why you might want to do that. I guess that's the other thing is that we've just kind of come to accept that we don't do QC and we grow cells forever, which I think are two big right. mistakes. Two big mistakes, you know? But what else could you do? In the old days, that was the only workflow that was really going to work. So that's what we did. Now we can do better. Thinking about the process, being able to have quality control on colony at large and then down to the single cell level before you even separate it out and get started, I mean, that's going to increase your efficiency. And like you're talking about, you can take the, the really fast growers and they get their own group of vials. The slow growers get their own. You know, everybody gets to have their own segmentation. And so you're taking the population and characterizing it also, in a sense. Right. And the fact that we can make these big batches now, that, and here's where I think the real value comes in. If you can make a huge batch, you can take the time to do proper quality control, do it carefully, get a really nice data set on the cells that are all frozen down, and then use them for a long period of time. In the old day, if you're passaging cells twice a week or once a week and you're constantly using them for experiments, you're essentially going to do no quality control again, which is what happens. Maybe if you're lucky, some labs do quality control directly after freezing, but they definitely don't look four to six months later when they continue to grow the cells, right? So I think it's going to be a real advantage because the cells, even if the cells are bad, they're not changing. You have this variable that's not moving. But at the same time, it also lets you do the quality control, which might reveal that you have a bad karyotype and you're about to embark on six months worth of experiments with a broken cell. Yeah, you could save yourself so much heartache. Yes, for really just bad results. Again, I think it's sort of the accepted standard in the field. I know tons of labs that would do this. They're just going to use the cells, whether they're broken or not. They may karyotype them after freezing, but not in the course of experiments. When they're still growing you probably wouldn't even have heartache because you wouldn't know that you're publishing bad results. You would just no. I think the logic there is I have a big result. If I see it with my loose and, you know, roughshod culture, then it's definitely going to hold up once I uh, clean up my system. So, yeah, I think you're right. But now we're, we're moving into an era where we got to put this stuff in people. So we got to raise the game and we yeah. got to have a standard or else, like you said, worse than even wasted time. We could have bad results, bad outcomes in patients. Yeah. You think you're helping them when you're hurting them. It's a big deal. You know, I just wanted to ask because we did cover your paper, the other paper you're on. Congratulations on uh, in cell stem cell just recently with uh, Shubin Chan and Lorenz. And so this is with the NPCs, and I guess this is where you're serving your function as a core and all that. Is this cryopause, you think, going to then move to this kind of next stage where you're not just cryopausing ESLs for use, but you can make big batches of organ-specific, in this case, like NPCs, and then freeze them down en masse to use for a kind of clinical trial or whatever type of toxicology study? Is that where you're at right now? Yeah, so I mean, there's definitely, I don't want to take any credit for that, because I think that sort of thing has been going on for a while. There are definitely groups that freeze down big batches of NPCs or other progenitors. I think, you know, philosophically, from my point of view, and thinking through what we're trying to do with Parkinson's disease, I would rather not freeze down that proliferative intermediate. And I would rather freeze in bulk the pluripotent stem cells and have a nice good look at them after banking and try to not expand them that much and then push them all the way to the neurons, as, or at least as close as possible as you can get to the neurons, 
and freeze that stage down. And the reason why, again, is that I think, you know, proliferation here is sort of the enemy. This is where you could get mistakes happening in genome duplication. So trying to get the best look you can as late as possible, I think, is the best idea. And so I would not want to sort of freeze that intermediate state. But for the cases of disease modeling and for people like Xu Bing, then sure, I, having a, all these stages frozen down, I think, is the way to go. But still, even to make those frozen NPCs, you need to start from PSCs at some point, unless you're going to start from the animal, different paradigm. Direct reprogramming, Mark. Come on. I thought you'd be all about it. <laughs> Could do that, I suppose. Sure. So a question that, uh, or comment that Dalen made a little earlier, I mean, this is, I guess, kind of for both of you with the cryopause and what you're doing with freezing. I mean, is there a lot of similarity to techniques that are currently used in IVF in freezing the eggs and getting them ready to actually really differentiate into a human being, right? Like, is this something that could potentially inform what IVF is doing and the way that they freeze? I mean, they sort of pioneered things, I think, as cryopreservation goes. And they use much fancier methods than we generally do. And I think in the early days, we used a lot of those methods as well, or at least those trained in the art. Of course, there's a lot of people that were doing both, right? We needed a lot of the IVF people to drive lines. So those methods were used. For many of us in the lab, I don't know, maybe I'll just speak for myself, Dalen. I don't know. Maybe you didn't struggle with it so much, but getting the timing right of their fancy methods and all the solutions right. I don't know. It never really worked so well for me. We could recover stuff, but it wasn't like some startling amount of cells. And so I didn't see a good translation there, but it may be that they're just different cells altogether. What we're doing is really fairly low tech. It's nothing so different than any mammalian cell at this point. Again, I think it was just the difference in culture system, which again, you're not going to have in the case of IVF. So I think there are enough differences that they've diverged at this point. I think you're right, Mark. Anything clinical, if it's not super complicated, then, you know, it doesn't belong in the clinic. So <laughs> I would tend to agree that maybe now we've just reached a level of sophistication that the simple answer is the most effective at this point. I think that's where IVF freezing is going to, you know, now vitrification, which is flash freezing essentially a very small or single cells that are big, in this case, eggs, you get very, very good recovery. And this is all because of, this is the one case, I love this story, where the restrictive nature of a religious governance system, it caused innovation. And this is because you couldn't fertilize more than one or two eggs. You couldn't create redundant embryos in uh, Italy because of objections of the Vatican and Roman Catholicism. So they had to figure out how to freeze the eggs. That works really well. But I agree, Mark, again, it's a very different system. It's a very different system. And I agree with you, too, that the simpler is better. And the next step is we're going to be cryopausing people. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, what do you yeah. think about that, though? Can we get to organoids? Are you ever going to freeze, like, little organ rudiments? How sophisticated do you think the freezing process can go in regenerative medicine? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I'm old and cynical now. I don't really see that happening. And I think the real frustrating part for me, so this comes more from the clinical work, is that, I mean, I'm all for cryopreservation at this stage for, you know, when once we learn how to freeze the midbrain dopamine neurons, it kind of changed the world for me and in figuring out that we should be doing this for everything, right? And especially as a core facility. I can make buckets of these various cell types that people want to study. 
have them frozen down, have them quality controlled. If they want them, I go get them a tube and I give it to them. So my life is easier, their life is easier, and they get great quality control with that product that I just gave them because I've been able to scale that quality control to the entire bank. So I really wanted to do this. And what's been frustrating and challenging to me and maybe to the field is that different cells want different things for cryopreservation. So our regular midbrain dopamine formula recipe for freezing cells doesn't really work well for spinal motor neurons. Don't know why, but they're just, you know, neurons should be a neuron in theory, but it's not. And of course, we know they do different things and they're different cells. That's kind of interesting, I guess, on a biological level and frustrating on a practical one that we're going to have to go through and really do big cryo screens to figure out the conditions for each cell type. But in the case of an organoid, if you have all these cell types hanging out in harmony, ah, how's that going to work? I just don't, I just don't see it happening. Someone will come, Mark, you I, cynical yeah. old bastard. I know. That's what you need some young graduate student that doesn't know any better. And then exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We need don't someone have, naive and foolish. What are your big next questions? You've got the, the cryopreservation that you're working on, effectiveness and efficiency in your facility. Where are you moving forward to now? We're having a pretty big push on trying to make single-base changes in pluripotent stem cells, largely for the disease modeling. And uh, I'll let you guys in on a little scoop here on the show. So one of the things that we, we publish in the paper that you can take these cells, you can melt them, and you can immediately nucleoaffect them. You can put nucleic acid in them. And we even showed that you could do CRISPR-based edits in them. What we found now more recently is that, and what we said in the paper is that we get pretty good efficiency, slightly worse on a percentage basis. But what we found is that if you use a big plasmid, which is the CRISPR-Cas9 plasmids are usually quite large, you get better efficiency. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's the osmolarity changes or is there something in the proprietary media or what it is. Something changes and you get usually around double the efficiency that you would normally, which is pretty good. So that's kind of been a game changer for us. It's really helped. And the technician that's working on this for me it's been really gratifying for me to see him sort of come around to cryopods. You know, he was trying to grow the cells a little bit at a time as a field normally does. It's tough to talk him into trying to grow a huge batch and he wasn't too keen on that. But once he did and he could wake them up at any day, he was really excited about that. Now, when he saw the change and efficiency that he's gotten with this technique, he, his eyes just lit up and he's really excited about that. But uh, on top of that, I think, you know, we're going to come up with ways that are going to allow us to edit even better. And so I'm hoping we can sort of piggyback on top of these technologies right now to sort of build one into the other. And that's, I think, going to be of great value to the people that use our core coming down the road here. It's the whole stronger, better, faster paradigm. And what's beautiful is that it's easier for the lab as well. It allows us to be, as a manager of the facility, I always have to constantly use my resources to the best of my ability to be able to recover money because, you know, no institute wants to spend tons of money on a core facility. So this allows me to use my people when they have downtime to make these sorts of banks. And then we can take that labor out of the freezer whenever we need it. And if it actually works better to do the experiments, then everybody wins. So considering you're right across the street and I'm like designing experiments in my head right now, what's the throughput there? You just come with your CRISPR target and you take it out of the freezer and at the efficiency of gene alteration. Could you do like knock-in as well? Is that what we're talking yeah. about here? Or is this so is more single base? We're not quite live with these things yet, but we could talk, you know, we'll talk offline. 
right. I'm going to catch not, you after the show. On, we're not quite <laughs> online. And that's really the problem, you know, for us is that this stuff is really expensive right now because it takes a lot of time and muscle. And the goal is to make it super turnkey. And right. Easy, right. So that I can really, truly offer it as a fee for service to clients that want to do it. And I don't have to throw price tags like 20 or 30 grand at people. And that's when people go, no. <laughs> yeah, right. What? We'll get back to you. We'll get back to you. Thanks so much. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, most cores right now, I think the going rate for those few that can do it is 20 grand, something like that. They're all custom jobs, right? I mean, it's not yeah. the nothing modular about it. You're pretty that's much right. like launching right. a graduate student project every time someone comes for, hey, will you knock in something in my line? I mean, that's a serious thing. It is. And so that's sort of the goal for us, I guess, is to try to make a situation where it's not so burdensome. That's what we're hoping to be able to do is to lower the bar and therefore lower the cost. Well, I'm thinking we should, instead of the title of the show right now is just cryopause, I think we need to change it to buckets of cells. It's my new... <laughs> <laughs> buckets of cells and melting you have got a lot of nice metaphors here i love it yeah the other one labor in the freezer <laughs> yeah they're good yeah. ones <laughs> well thank you so much for joining us today to talk with us about the work that you're doing and uh hopefully this methodology this process will become turnkey as you hope and that it will become something that you'll be able to really offer to many many scientists making their stem cell journeys better Thank you very much for the opportunity. And uh, I'm really a huge fan of you guys and the work you do for us. Mark, I'm a huge fan of you. You know why? The best scientists make other scientists better. And that's what you're doing, my man. So you're doing a great thing for others, which most scientists don't do. They're more worried about themselves. Good for you, man. Thank you very much for the kind words. I appreciate it. All right. Kiki, that was Mark Tomashima, my good friend and an innovator behind CryoPause, letting us all press play on our experiments without all the hassle and the nonsense and with reproducibility par excellence. So <laughs> it was great talking to him. What do you think? I think he's facilitating great work all around and doing his own thing, too. Yeah, he's absolutely a facilitator for great scientists uh, doing or scientists doing greater work. I think the big thing about this is, you know, going against the accepted grain, the accepted procedures of how preserving cells takes place. You know, he took a different slant. He attacked it in a different way and now potentially has a very efficient process to be able to provide more quality control, as he said many times, and larger numbers of cells in an easier way to scientists. So this is pushing scientists' abilities forwards in the end, really. That's my man. That's mm -hmm. my man, Mark. Yes. Love that guy. It was great meeting him. He was a good, good conversation. But at this point, it's not about good things anymore. Well, it's going to be a good old stem cell podcast rant. This is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. Daylon, what are we ranting about today? It's these little wild cards that we call the cubs, these little young cubs that are all around us doing stuff. That's, I mean, we've all been there and we get excited and we do stuff, but kids, they don't have control of their parts you know what i mean <laughs> no, there's no physical control <laughs> and they're so unpredictable i mean and and not really that smart like life smart 
Like my <laughs> son, the other day we were skipping rocks. I mean, you know where, where this ends. But <laughs> it's not actually how you thought. It could have been worse, which is that he could have flung the rock directly into my face. But what he did instead is I was standing. We didn't commence the rock skipping yet, but he just couldn't wait. And he swung his hand back to throw it in his wild, gangly arms, and he punched me in the face pretty much with all his might. He did like a reverse punch in the face. And I wanted to punch him back, I'll tell you, but I had to suppress all my anger because you have to, you know, be like, oh, how cute, his exuberance. But it's annoying, that exuberance, Kiki. (laughs) And you're the grown-up, so control yourself because the children obviously are not controlling themselves. No, they're not. I mean, have you ever got beat up by a kid, Kiki? Oh, my gosh, my my child has been trying to blind me since he was born. (laughs) His hands fly out and... These random directions. I have had a finger in my eye so many times. The pain. And this last weekend, yes, Friday evening, my son, he wears this baseball cap everywhere. Uh, Recently, he's just like gotten into shoving himself into my face for a Mm, hug. I want to hug you. And he's really (laughs) enthusiastic about the hug. And I'm like, yes. But he came in hot. And that baseball cap bill went right in my eye and I felt it scrape. It went scraped across the surface of my eye. And I was just like, oh. And it was fine before I went to bed. You know, hurt a little bit. I was like, okay, that hurts. All right. I woke up the next morning. I had a headache all day and my eyes bloodshot. It's just red. I look like I have pink eye. I'm wandering around wearing sunglasses all the time. And people are asking you, they're like, what happened? You're <laughs> what like, happened my kid beat me up. They're like, like, yeah, right. I'm, I'm calling the cops. <laughs> <laughs> Your poor husband. Your oh, poor husband. I'm... Everyone's looking at him like an abuser. Birthday parties with pinatas and baseball bats. Who wants to give a little kid a baseball bat? And oh my God, somebody's going to get hit because kids are just like, like you said, excited. And they're going to, they're going to bat that pinata before the countdown happens. Someone else is going to get a baseball bat to the head. We've all seen it. America's Funniest Home Videos exists because of these exuberant kids. Yes. I mean, so... Let's put them out of business, okay? Kids, take a Xanax. <laughs> That's right. We're just going, like, can we just, yeah, can we just drug the children? No. <laughs> <sighs> they will learn how to control themselves. They will, right? They will. No, yeah. I don't think so. I'm afraid not. Oh, children. It hurts. They hurt. All right, everyone. Be sure to send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. And Dalen, that concludes episode 97 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Everyone out there, be sure to tune in to our next episode. 